Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to investigate the Scriptures with me for a few moments as we continue with our quest for the truth about Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Did you know that the word word in the Bible is perhaps the most significant of all biblical terms? Many people today, when they use the expression word of God, use it as a synonym for the Bible as a whole. Now, it's certainly true that the Bible is a divine revelation, a repository of truth, unveiling the mind and the purpose and the counsel of the one God of Israel. But the term Word of God in the New Testament is a technical term, and it has a much more focused meaning than just being a synonym for the Bible. When the Bible talks about the Bible, it refers to it as the Scriptures, or in the words of Jesus in Luke 24, verse 44, the Old Testament he called the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the Writings, as being the third division of the Hebrew Bible. Rather, unfortunately, we call Jesus' Bible the Old Testament. Now, that's problematic. We really should call it the Hebrew Bible. Did you know that that amounts to 77% of divine revelation? More than three-quarters of the Bible is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and that was the Bible on which Jesus was raised and reared. And that's the Bible in which we as Christians are supposed to be rooted and grounded. If you're one that finds the reading of the Old Testament dry or irrelevant or a chore, then our program today may help to change that situation for the good. You see, the Hebrew Bible is the groundwork it's the basis, it's the foundation out of which Jesus works. He assumes that we understand what happens in the Old Testament. He assumes that we know there's a great overarching plan that God is working out, a covenant which he originally made with Abraham, which he confirmed through Moses, and which he reaffirmed in David, and which he has confirmed once again in Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus died to ratify the covenant. He shed his blood, because covenants were always initiated with the shedding of blood. He shed his blood to bring into being the new covenant. But that new covenant is based on a preceding covenant and agreement. Agreements indeed made with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And so it's really a renewal of the covenant that Jesus achieves. It's not entirely new, as though the Old Testament can be thrown away as irrelevant and passé. Now, there are aspects, of course, of the Old Testament which are not binding on Christians today. We might mention, for example, the whole sabbatical system, the resting on the seventh day as commanded in the fourth commandment, the resting on special holy days, the non-eating of pork, the non-mixing of fabrics in clothing, and so on. There are laws given to Israel as a custodian, as a tutor, to bring them towards Christ. But those laws, as Paul describes in the book of Galatians and elsewhere, are not binding on the Christian church. But what is very much binding on the Christian church is other parts of the Hebrew Bible. You see, the covenant made with Abraham is not obsolete. 
Paul explained in Galatians 3 that the covenant of promise, the oath-bound promise made to Abraham, is the underlying feature of the Christian covenant, the covenant made in Jesus. And so to ignore that covenant made with Abraham, that oath-bound covenant, which we're going to examine in detail, to ignore that covenant which God made with Abraham would be a fatal mistake in Bible study. We really can't hope to make sense of the New Testament if we are not aware of the story which has developed in that first 75% or more of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament. Imagine that you had a book of 20 chapters, and you pick it up and you always read it from the 16th chapter to the end. Now that's what some are doing with the Bible, and no wonder the story doesn't make a lot of sense. We open ourselves up to all kinds of mistakes if we begin reading the Bible, according to my analogy, in the 16th chapter out of 20 chapters, that 77% of our Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is absolutely essential if we're to grasp the ongoing story, the unfolding drama which God works out in the pages of his revelation from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation at the end of our New Testament. And so our purpose must be, in this series of programs as we examine the kingdom of God, to understand what the kingdom of God means in the light of the great covenant made with Abraham and confirmed by Jesus. I remind you that in Romans 15, verse 7, we read that Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, a Jewish preacher, who came to confirm the promises made to Abraham. And of what relevance is that to you as a Gentile, you may ask? And the answer is that there is no salvation outside the salvation given to the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus himself said in John 4, verse 22. And so God graciously offers us salvation, immortality in the kingdom, in connection with his chosen people, his chosen Messiah, Jesus Christ, who himself based his teaching on the pre-existing covenants made with Abraham, uh, with Moses and with David, found in our Hebrew Bible. Now, the word word in the New Testament is the technical term for the gospel. And did you know that that term, Word of God, first occurs in a critically important passage in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham is given a vision of salvation, and the text there reads as follows. Genesis 15, verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, which is a good, stable, easy-to-understand translation of the Bible. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. You remember the story that Abraham was looking forward to having a son. God had promised him a son, but no son had been born. And so Abraham decides to work out things on his own agenda. He suggested to God that God's promise could be worked through this Eliezer of Damascus, who was not actually Abraham's son. But God's word stood firm, as it always does. And so we read in the next verse that the word of the Lord again came to him, saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. 
but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And God took Abraham outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then in verse 6 we have an extraordinarily interesting response of Abraham to God's word. Genesis 15 verse 6 reads, Then Abraham believed the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham here is a prototype and model of faith, of Christian faith. Faith means believing and trusting what God says and what God has done and what he's going to do. As one of our leading commentaries says, Abraham relied on someone, he gave credence to a message, or he considered it to be true, he trusted in God. That's the essence of Christian faith, trusting in God's revelation, in his words, in his message, trusting indeed in God's covenant, which is his arrangement graciously offered to us for our response. Abraham is the prototype and the paradigm and the model of Christian faith. Let me now take you to the New Testament, and I want to read certain verses which are crucially important for establishing the link between Christianity and the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 Paul said this, If you are Christians, then you are reckoned as Abraham's descendants, and you are heirs according to the promise. Now, we as Christians then would be exceedingly interested, you think, in the promises made to Abraham, because as Christians, Gentiles or Jews, we're reckoned to be the true seed of Abraham, and we become heirs in accordance with the promises made to Abraham, Galatians 3.29. Now, what was that promise that was made to Abraham? We're going to explore this in detail, but let me give you one crucially important verse in the New Testament, where Paul said this about the promise to Abraham. Romans 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham was that he would be heir of the world. May I point out in passing that this promise made to Abraham has nothing to do with going to heaven. The Christian language about going to heaven when you die is in fact alien to the whole of biblical revelation. The promise to Abraham, and remember that Christians are heirs of these promises, according to Galatians 3.29, the promise to Abraham, Paul said, was that he would be heir of the world. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. Now, in Romans 15, verse 8, we read that Jesus Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And, of course, the fathers included Abraham as the chief father of the Israelite people. Now, here's another verse that bears on our subject directly. In Ephesians 3, verse 6, we read, The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, in verse 6. And now notice this carefully. Back in Galatians 3, verse 8, this time, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Did you note there that the Christian gospel was proclaimed and preached to Abraham? That must prove to any unprejudiced reader of the Bible that the Christian gospel, the Christian faith itself, is thoroughly rooted and grounded in the covenant promises made to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 8. 
In Acts 26, verses 6 and 7, Paul made a very direct statement about what he was hoping for, and it had to do with the hope to which his own nation of Israel was also committed. Paul said in Acts 26, verses 6 and 7, I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, I'm being accused by the Jews. Isn't that ironical? Paul, as a Christian, was being accused wrongly, and wrongly indeed because he was standing, in fact, for the very hope of Israel, that hope which he knew would come to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Now let's go to the words of Jesus himself in regard to the promise. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to have the earth or the land as their inheritance. Abraham was promised an inheritance. Jesus spoke of that inheritance as exactly the same as the inheritance involved in the covenant made with Abraham, as we're going to see in further detail. Let's remember that hope is the second major cardinal Christian virtue. It's important to define our hope, and we're going to show that that hope is based on the covenants made with Abraham. Write to us for a free book on the kingdom of God. We'd be happy to send it to you for your personal Bible study at home. Remember that Jesus was a Jew whose teaching must be understood in its own first-century Palestinian environment. We must avoid reading our own ideas into the Bible. We need to get the truth directly from the text. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.